0: with cinematographer Craig Robleski. He uh, was a cinematographer, one of the cinematographers on Fargo, on Legion. He um, also did the the X-Files reboot and the Twilight Zone reboot. Uh, So he's had a a, a pretty great run in these last couple years and we were able to talk all about it and talk about some of the the commonalities and similarities between, you know, doing some of these uh, reboot style style shows and, and what that means and how you deal with you know pre-existing aesthetics and how you kind of impart your own your own thing on top of that as well as uh what the what it was like with working with the various directors of these and and um what he might have learned from them i know that he learned a lot from the um from the fargo director noah Hawley or showrunner i should say and so you know uh a great conversation craig uh, has a way of um just kind of looking at things in a in a calm, cool manner, which I think is awesome when you're when you're trying to like break down a lot of different aspects of your career. So I really I really enjoyed the conversation with Craig. It was a lot of fun uh, speaking with him. And so uh, also we are sponsored by Masters of Motion, which is a a three day filmmaking conference down in Austin, Texas. It happens every December. Tickets are currently on sale at shooteditlearn.com. Um, and, you know, over the course of the three days, a lot of ASC cinematographers, ACE editors, top of the line production designers, um, everyone comes down. There's, there's, um, speed they do speaking things they also we also have a hands-on practicum type of day so there's a lot to take from it and uh, far and away i think the best part is just that at night everybody goes out austin is a small town so everybody hangs out together and that's including some of the speakers that decide to stay for a couple days and you get to you know pick their brain buy them a beer and 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 chat with them uh at times one-on-one which i think is really cool and so we have a a couple things going on right now. If you at checkout on the uh, on the purchase of your tickets, if you put an AVC pod as a discount code, you'll get hundred dollars off. And also, if you go to the uh, AVC pod Instagram account and also the Masters in Motion Instagram account, we are uh, running a dual a dual uh, ticket giveaway. So, if you uh, follow the rules that are listed uh, in the, on those Instagram posts, we uh, we announced this ticket giveaway on last week's show, and i uh, gonna give one more announcement this week, and then we are announcing who has been selected next week. So it's been it'll be going for for two weeks by the time it's all said and done. You have one one week left, uh, so please, if you haven't purchased a ticket yet, uh, you know, try and uh, try and win yourself a a free ticket. And so, uh, yep, yeah, this week is with. Canadian Society of Cinematographers um, member, Craig Wobleski. Thanks for being here. So you're in Toronto right now doing Umbrella Academy?
1: Yeah, I'm working on season two of Umbrella. I've been here since June. Uh, it's going very well. Season one was a blast, so I'm happy to be back for season two.
0: Yeah, that's cool. How, how far into uh, shooting season two are you?
1: We're just a little past the halfway point. I'm, we're shooting episodes uh, six. hang on. <laughs> Let me get the math right. six and seven right now. How long is the uh, does the season take to shoot? Uh, we I wrap up mid-november and they've been shooting since May. so not sure what that is, six, seven months. That's awesome. Um, yeah. how
0: when, 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 when did you shoot the first season? How long ago was that?
1: Oh uh, that was last year. They started in January. and We wrapped up in July.
0: And uh, what do you what do you particularly like about working on this one?
1: Well, Steve Blackman, the showrunner, is a fantastic guy. I'd, I'd worked with him on Fargo and Legion. He was one of the writers and producers on Fargo and Legion. And he's just a great storyteller and an all around great guy. And, and he created the show. And you know, all his work really has a lot of heart at the at the. Uh, the middle of it all you know like for all of he's got incredible imagination but his work is always about heart and it's always about humanity and yeah you know so he, it's got everything like it's the call sheets are crazy for the show where we will shoot <laughs> in the course of a day we'll shoot you know a heartfelt scene with two characters very emotional and then the next scene two people beating each other up and then there's like a big stunt sequence being out you know it's like every day is like five shows in one and it's i love it because it's, that's fun yeah, it's new challenges, and also, you know, it's fun to kind of walk the line tonally in yeah. terms of how we do, you know, having to mix up, you know, the style of how we shoot and, and really take a fresh approach to each scene because everything is so tonally different, and, you know, it requires a different touch. It's it's certainly not a cookie-cutter show by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's really nice to have that type of um, longevity with the collaborators. I mean, I yeah. think that, that, that makes all no, the I, difference
1: it's a really good family, you know, it's really good people and everyone really cares and, you know, they're all filmmakers and they really care about, you know, doing the best job possible. So it's nice to be amongst that kind of energy too.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I, I've in looking over in like preparing to, to chat with you. I was looking over, you know, your your career and your IMDB <clears> and I, I thought it was so interesting just like in the beginning that it seemed like um, to go all the way back that it seemed like there were you know, I guess what I, not surprisingly, you know, some short films, some documentaries, and then it kind of took a few years to really get going, at least in terms of, you know, the filmography filmography resume. And I was Mm -hmm. curious, like looking back at that time, what that was like, and what your intentions were at that time, because obviously now it's grown into this whole career. um, And if there was anything in that early stage that kind of stands out as a moment where there was a, a real shift or a level up kind of, kind of a moment for you.
1: Well, it happened kind of early because I graduated from uh, a college that was essentially was like a community college. It was a fairly small school and they were teaching television, Mm. you know, and television in the strictest sense of the word, which is like news and, you know, studio work and that kind of thing. Like there wasn't, you know, it's sort of what I thought cameras were used for at the time. I was like 19 years old. I'm like, okay, this is what you do with the cameras. You shoot like the news or the weather or whatever. So were you not a big
0: movie head, like as a kid, like you didn't go into yeah, college. Yeah, I loved
1: I loved movies, but for some reason, I had some sort of mental block about the fact that you could actually do that for a living. Like it didn't seem attainable, you know. Like okay, I, interesting. I thought, oh, that's what other people do. Right. You know. So so I thought, okay, well, you know, because I was I I was in Calgary at the time, and I still live south of Calgary, you know, which isn't a big film center. So right. The idea of making movies just, you know, with me living there, just didn't seem feasible. Mm. Um But then I I got a job at a TV station right out of school, uh, you know, which is what you're supposed to do. You go to school and you get a job. So I got a job and a year into it, I just woke up one morning and I went, oh, my God, I got to get out of there. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like I was I worked with great people, but they are people who had been there for, you know, 25, 30 years. And I just thought I don't want to be here in 25 or 30 years. You know, I don't want to be doing the same thing. And they had a subscription to American Cinematographer, like the, the TV station paid for a subscription. Yeah. And they were all sitting there in a pile like collecting dust because nobody read them. <laughs> and and you know, the the shifts I was working on, we would do the the morning news and then we would do the late news. And there was a lot of downtime in between. You know, most guys were just, you know, sitting watching the hockey game or walking around and catching up with people. But I was just sitting there reading all these American cinematographers. And mm. I remember flipping through them going like oh, wow, yeah, you can use cameras to do this, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It sort of opened up up my thinking about using the camera as a storytelling tool and not just as a capture tool, you know, which is kind of what I was trained to do was to use it as a capture tool for news or weather or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember specifically reading an article about The Color Purple, the Spielberg film, Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing, like, these images of where they're creating fake snow and – you know, and how they did like the sunflower field sequence and all this, and I'm just like, hang on, like this is really cool. <laughs> like I, I became really fascinated with it, and I think it was all part of my thinking to quit, you know, the the TV studio to say, okay, like this is a road I want to go down. And, how how you know, old were you when I'll that I'll thought ever came? I'll never get there, but maybe I will.
0: How old were you when that thought came?
1: Uh, I think I was 20. Okay. I, yeah. I graduated from school when I was nineteen, and I got the job right away. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was a twenty-year-old working amongst you know forty, forty-five-year-old yeah. guys, and like an E-N-G I was a keener, setting. and everybody's giving me a hard time about being, you know, yeah, look, he's you know, he's a keener, you know, brown nosing, you know, yeah, these, yeah. These stuff, yeah, that's well, sort of good nature. When good you had that meeting. realization that you but, wanted
0: to, when you had that realization that you wanted to, um, like, you realized about the cinematic nature of things, and you wanted to shift. Were you? Were you in a position in that moment where you're like, well, I don't know how to even do that? Or did you kind of have a sense of how you can kind of start walking down that, that path?
1: Well, I had no idea, really. Um, I mean, I, I, I'd i known like Vancouver at the time was really starting to take off as a film center. So I when I quit the job, I went on a road trip to Vancouver to just kind of see, you know, I went to the Panavision offices, and I remember standing outside the gates of what was then called north shore i think it was called Lionsgate studios back then which ironically is where i shot twilight zone last year so you know i got to go through the gates that's a nice full circle moment yeah it was amazing you know it's like you gotta step back every once in a while and soak in those moments when you realize just how incredible this all is yeah that was one of them where it's like you know i remember standing out there as a pimply faced 20 year old (laughs) wondering what was wondering what was going on in there and then you know all these years later to you know, have the security guy left the gate and had me drive in as a cinematographer was, it felt like, you know, felt like an arrival moment. Yeah, for sure. Hell yeah. But, uh, but I went to Vancouver back then to get a feel for the industry and sort of get a, a vibe of what it was all about. And, you know, it didn't really help me feel like it was any more achievable. If anything, it felt a little more insurmountable, but it kind of affirmed my resolve that this is what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, I just started to feel the power of the camera as a storytelling tool and and really just pursued that. And I, I volunteered for essentially a year uh, on people's short films and, you know, student projects and things just to just to get you know my feet wet and understand that side of it, because I hadn't really, you know, I didn't know anything about dramatic production in any sense, really.
0: Yeah, you, you were from, not you know what I read, not classically trained, not not. Went to no film school so in, in that sense would you just would you consider yourself self-taught
1: uh I guess so I never really thought of it that way but I guess so because I didn't have yeah I didn't have film school training like we didn't talk about cinema at the school I went to we talked about you know uh, news and docu- not even really documentaries it was very rudimentary the course I took I mean it, it taught me a lot but it taught me a lot about the fundamentals of a different type of, yeah. of image making so I guess in a sense I am self-taught in, in a way but I mean I don't really consider myself self-taught I consider myself taught by everyone I've ever worked with sure. because I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of incredible people
0: yeah I mean I think in reality that is what that is what self-taught really is if you break it down um, yeah. And that, that's awesome. Um, and that's, that's good to hear. You know, I get a fair mix of people that have, you know, they've been playing with super eight films since they were six years old and then, you know, it's, and then it varies. And so, and it's nice to hear that it varies. Cause I think that that lets you realize that it, there isn't one way and that kind of keeps getting reinforced.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, for, yeah. Well, it's, and it's a job. I mean, I always say it's a job you, you never get good at, you just get better. Yeah. You know, so it's, I'm still learning every day, Yeah. if I ever stop learning, then I better find something else to do.
0: Well, that's what's exciting about it, too, because I mean, it it allows, I think, for every time you're making a new project to kind of still be in in somewhat awe of the process and really amped on getting good stuff that you didn't think possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't go away, which is great, because if it did, I think it would be harder to deal with how hard it is, you know, because it's obviously a very hard craft.
1: Yeah. And, you know, a healthy amount of fear, too, you know, where Mm. if you ever go in and you're not a little bit afraid of, you know, not being able to achieve your vision, then that's a good thing. Right. That means you're pushing yourself beyond your limits and and you'll grow and learn. And, you know, and I think it's important. I was talking to somebody about this last night. You know, the one of the biggest risks we can we can take in the creative process is the need to be right.
2: Mm.
1: You know, if you need to be right all the time. That can be dangerous, you know what I mean? Because then, if, you, if your voice has to be the overriding voice all the time, and your your opinion always has to be the right one, then you're not fully absorbing all the creative energy around you, and you're not always pushing yourself beyond your own limits. Because if you're right about something, then it's something you've probably done before,
2: mm. you know
1: what I mean? Whereas mm. if if you're like, I could be wrong about this, but I think this could be a cool idea, yeah. And if you're willing, if you're willing to open yourself up to that and expose yourself that way. It's, it's great, but it's you know some crews will look at that as weakness, and they'll go like he doesn't right. know what he's talking about, right? You know, but I think it's important to kind of put your ego aside in the process and say, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I always joke with the crew; I deserve the right to be wrong. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so kind of open that up and say like, look, like I'm not, I'm not saying that my idea is the only idea. I'm just saying that it's maybe a starting point for other ideas.
0: Well, that's that's true too, because I you know. It is so collaborative and I think some people might get caught in a trap of saying that they like collaboration, but if that's not going hand in hand with being, with not always being right, you're not really, that's not really collaborating.
1: No, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, there's, I always think that if if people are taking orders and uh, if you're training people to take orders, then you'll get what you want, mm. but you'll never get what they can bring to it. You know, if people are only taking orders, then you'll, only, you'll get what you want. hmm But it won't go beyond that. You know, you won't get to allow other people to bring their voices to it and you end up with this choir, you know. It's like when you're – to get what you want, that's a solo performance. But, you know, you want to be singing in a choir where everybody's – you know, and it can't be complete chaos. You can't open the floor to everybody's opinion because then it's just anarchy. But, you know, with your key collaborators to include their voices in the mix is critical.
0: Yeah, it's figuring out, like, you know, the right – too much too much of your hands in, in your in your like in your people's rice bowls is micromanagement, but not having it at all, it obviously runs amuck, so it's like figuring out that balance mm-hmm. is the key.
1: yeah it's a, it's a fine line because you know there's I think it was David Fincher that said you know there's a few people that can leave, but most people just want to get in line mm. and uh, he phrased it more eloquently than that but yeah. yes the the essence of it was
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know that most people are happy to kind of get behind a leader and help them, but which is great, you know, cause that's, you need that kind of hierarchy on a film set as well, but sure. it's also, you know, people, you know, filmmaking is a cumulative experience and people bring a lot of different experiences to the mix. And, you know, it's part of what I like about working in different cities with different crews is you, you learn things from them. And it's like, well, I've never seen that before. I, you know, where'd you learn that? And, you know, you sort of pick up on these things and, you start to bring all these different things to the mix, and it just becomes interesting, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to to, to where you were on that track, just moving forward a little bit. Where do you? When do you think you had a um, a project that, for the first time, was felt like you know a step forward for you? Um, and it might not necessarily be that big of a thing, but it was the one where like you felt really challenged, and you felt that you rose to it, and that there was, um, I don't know, maybe. The the, what happened afterwards from the success of it might have brought you to the to another place. Like what what was the first project that rings a bell where it had that type of career affirming uh, moment for you?
1: Well, it was a it was a a biopic. I think it was for Lifetime. No, it was actually for VH1. I think back mm. in the day, and it was a Michael Jackson biopic, and it was I think it was called Man in the Mirror. Yeah. And they were shooting in Calgary, and they had they had a lot of. Uh, the director wanted to take a very, uh, I want to say nonlinear approach to it. Like he wanted it to be more of a tone poem and a visual essay of Michael Jackson's life as opposed to a strict, you know, I mean, the reality is you're not going to create Neverland in Calgary. So, he wanted to,
2: <laughs> yeah. you know, he wanted yeah.
1: to, to take an approach that was a little more evocative and a little more, um, uh, you know, stylized version of his life. And the producers, uh, Mike Frislov and Chad Oaks, had worked with me on commercial work uh, and some music video work. And they called me up and said, did you want to come out and help out with this, it's kind of a splinter unit they were doing that was mainly going out and shooting these, these kind of images that the director was after that were, weren't the strict, you know, page count drama type of shooting, but it was more like just shooting Cool stuff, basically, for lack of a better word. And, that's the perfect environment. All of my cumulative, ex- sorry, go ahead.
0: I was saying that's the perfect environment for to like. I'm not surprised that it's yeah. that type of scenario that rings a bell for like the question that I asked because for something to be that stylized and you can kind of jam on something a bit less straightforward.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was it was you know the, they were shooting the dramatic parts in sort of a documentary style. Uh, but they were looking for these stylized music video, you know, commercial kind of elements where we used a lot of different frame rates and different techniques and a lot of stuff that, you know, now you look back on, it's kind of cheesy. But at the time it was, yeah. you know, like you the tinsel in front of the lens and all this stuff where you're just creating all these layers of, of foreground and, and you, know, you know, essentially stuff that was, you know, beautiful, but not linear. And the the shoot was accumulative cumulative, uh, you know, I talked about things being cumulative That called on all of my experience, you know, between because I'd done documentaries, I'd done commercials, I'd done music videos, I'd done a lot of different things up to that point. And it sort of called on all of those things. So it was the perfect, it was my perfect entree into drama because Mm. it wasn't the strict, you know, get your eight pages done and, you know, matching coverage and all of those sorts of things that I didn't have a lot of knowledge of at that point in time. Yeah but it was the perfect entree into the dramatic world where I could make a segue from what I'd been doing into that world. And, you know, it got me in the union and it, oh, wow. it just got me on, on the set of, of a, you know, a network dramatic production, which was a real eye opener. And it was, I mean, my, I've been blessed in my career with, with getting opportunities that were good fits. You yeah. Know? Like I've been thrown in over my head a lot, mm. but I, I always knew, the pool I was in. You know, it's not like I was thrown in the middle of the ocean. I had no idea where I was. I always, it was, it always worked out that, you know, thankfully that I was put into situations that I could use the skills I had Mm -hmm. in a productive way and not be a fish out of water.
0: That's awesome. And it's cool that the opportunity allowed you to get into the union. And then did the, um, did the piece itself have, um, outside success more, more than, you, people thought it was going to have what was a, was that a part of how it helped you or
1: I, I feel like it did i mean i it it introduced me to uh a lot of people that i that i you know still work with and mm. still know and it also showed mike frislev and chad oaks that you know the producers that i could live in that world because they'd known me in one world and then they put me in this other world and they saw that i could I could do well in that world as well. That's so and that huge, led to, you know, to other dramatic, you know, they, they offered me some other films, you know, sort of the, you know, 50-day really run-and-gun style shooting kind of projects, which, again, worked because I, having done documentary work, you learn to be quick on your feet in documentaries where, you know, you've got to walk into a room and assess it and make really quick decisions about how you're going to shoot something and, and really be able to break things down in a quick fashion. So... You know, that helped, that experience helped with the speed of those productions. And yeah, it was just, it was a very natural flow. And and just from there, it just kind of grew in a very, it felt like a natural, sort of, for lack of a better word, organic way.
0: Yeah, it did. I I was just taken by the the notion that the producers that had called you on, they were able to see you in a new light. And it really is, that is such a hurdle, I think, is to being seen by people that already know you in one way to be seen in a new light with them. And a lot of times it often mm-hmm. takes, you know, leaving working with whoever that may be and, and do work with other people that don't know you for that thing and then like, you know, bringing that new work that you're able to make and show old collaborators like what, what else you can do. It's so difficult to actually have moments where you get to do the, the new thing with the old people as your first go. So that that was nice that exactly. that worked out for you that way.
1: Yeah, and I credit Chad and Mike for For you know thinking of me that way and not pigeonholing me into being one thing you know and that's also the benefit of you know Calgary wasn't the easiest place to to build a career in yeah I wouldn't trade it for anything because I you know there wasn't that many people in town doing what I was doing so that I was able to get a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things I mean I've I've shot everything from live music specials to you know corporate videos commercials like you name it and and every week was very interesting and very diverse and then when i you know when i started doing dramatic work i realized it was so nice that i wasn't pigeonholed because you know mm-hmm. if i'd have been in a bigger market it might have been like oh he's the commercial guy and he's the car commercial guy or he's the tabletop right. guy where you know you end up getting a fairly narrow range of experience by vir- virtue of the fact that you are one of many and people have a tendency to want to pigeonhole and want to put people in a category and I was never and I you know it was partially of my own volition because I never wanted to be categorized mm-hmm. so I would take on and I would show interest in all types of different projects because I didn't want to be just one thing and yeah. I still don't
0: yeah so you were doing that proactively trying to fight against being pigeonholed and yeah yeah, and and it was and just
1: showing interest in a lot of different things you know sure. I mean yeah. I could have said like I'm going to be a dramatic cameraman so all I'm going to do is pursue drama but if I'd have done that, I would have shut myself off to a lot of other things that have, that have come to be valuable, you know, and you put, cause everything you shoot, you know, it becomes another tool in your toolbox. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you only pursue one thing kind of myopically, you can end up with a toolbox that has, you know, one big hammer in it, but that's all you have. You
0: know? Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I, I related a lot to what you were saying about how documentary helps narrative and narrative helps doc, but like that in both ways, I, 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 I wouldn't, Ever want to take that away from my experience like Mm -hmm. toolkit because you know they they help each other so much. Um, did and also the fact that it's interesting hearing coming from a smaller market and the benefits thereof because obviously it's harder to get known and have things come to you in that type of market being Calgary. But once you do, and if you do position yourself as like the guy that gets the call when the interesting thing comes to town, that's you could argue, I feel like you could make an argument that that's um. A really good place to be, maybe more so in the beginning than in a larger market.
1: I felt that way. I mean, granted, it was a different time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the the industry shrunk a lot in the sense of range. You know, like back then, we would be it seemed like the, the money was freer. You know, people would be
2: mm.
1: you know, people could get financing for a more diverse range of projects than they could now. You know, it seems like despite all of the all of the channels and everything it's feels yeah. like, like in a way creatively the industry shrunk a little bit like it's it'd be harder to do what i did now mm. because you know music videos aren't what they used to be commercials aren't what they used to be um even documentaries have somewhat been hijacked by reality television and you know there's it's it's a very different world and it would be much harder to take my path now yeah i think you could take a version of it i mean the upside of Of that path now is that you know back in the day if I wanted to shoot a music video we were like stealing short ends of film and we were going into the the lab and the transfer facility in the middle of the night to scan it and then we would like go into the edit suite at the tv station at one in the morning when no one was there you know to cut it and you're just calling up favors like crazy and and it was just sort of like you know you'd sort of beg your way through, through the process you know, and now I look at what filmmakers can do with, you know, with a 5D and a laptop. Yeah. You know, you can take it through acquisition, degrading, cutting, like you could do the whole process, you know, in your living room on a laptop and have it be an incredible quality. So, you know, I think there's a version of my process that you could take now that arguably might be simpler technically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's more complicated from an industry standpoint, but you know, there's, yeah. The way the technology, the you know democratization of the process, but technology's been an incredible boon, I think, to young filmmakers.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, how how far after that experience with the Michael Jackson piece was it? What was that journey from that to Heartland, which, you know, was obviously a big TV series in your career, especially at, you know mm-hmm. getting into TV at that level? Was that a long time? What was that journey like to get to that point? <laughs>
1: I think it was about four years. And, you know, I've done a lot of uh, smaller films and i had done one feature called 45 RPM with uh, a director named Dave Schultz, who Dave was the guy who gave me my first paying gig after I quit the TV station. Like I'd volunteered for about a year and I'd worked on a film that Dave was brought out as the AD on. And I was literally driving one of the motorhomes like I was a PA. Yeah. And for some reason, we we hit it off and we got along and Dave you know, I talked to Dave, and he was—he's like, "What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "I want to shoot." And you know, that's well. Tell me what I want to do. And he had this corporate video. I can't remember what the product was. It was some crazy, like, personal protection product where you'd spray people, but it wasn't like mace. It was like some <laughs> okay. weird form of spray paint. Like, I don't, yeah. it never went anywhere. Yeah. But we we shot this uh, this corporate video. With these dramatic recreations of people like breaking into a house and
0: oh, that's hilarious! This woman,
1: this woman spraying them with this stuff. Like it's, <laughs> it's actually looking back on it, it, was quite entertaining. Yeah, but it was you know Dave and I hit it off, and uh, we had a really good time shooting this thing. And and shooting that, I also met Bruce Harvey, who was at the time putting a series together, uh, which was kind of a precursor to like Entertainment Tonight. It was sort of. Mm-hmm the Canadian version of it where you'd go to film sets and interview stars. So I met Bruce and Bruce hired me to shoot this series called real TV, which was this entertainment tonight type of show. And I traveled across the country, going to film sets and shooting interviews and doing like press kit style work, which again was like an incredible experience just to go to these sets. Cause I didn't know a lot about dramatic production at that point. So just getting to go to sets and, you know, seeing how it was done and be like you know, completely in awe of it all. Yeah. Uh, but I mean. So, you know, we did that series and that was fantastic. And then Dave was putting, Dave's a great writer and and a great director. And he had this film called 45 RPM and he'd been following me and, you know, we kept in touch and he knew I was doing drama and he contacted me about shooting this feature in Saskatchewan called 45 RPM, which, you know, was like a single camera, 35 millimeter film shoot. And I'd been shooting film, you know, I'd sort of picked up shooting film on commercials and that kind of thing. So, you know i had been knowledgeable and experienced in shooting film and he said i want to shoot this 35 mil and i want to finish it photochemically and you know it was a great it was like a fantastic experience of shooting a single camera 35 mil feature that was finished photochemically like it's just it was such a fantastic experience yeah but i shot that film with dave and the film turned out really well and one of the producers of heartland saw that film they saw it at the Canadian, at the Calgary Film Festival, and the DP on Heartland, Malcolm Cross, was leaving the show. He'd done it for I think two years, and he wanted to move on. So they contacted me, and also some I'd I known all virtually all the Heartland crew and a lot of the editors, and and they said, "Oh, you should you know, talk to Craig. He'd probably be interested in doing it." And it was fortuitous. I mean, I've been so fortunate in my career, like I, I just got horseshoes because this was 2009 just after you know the big economic collapse when basically commercials fell away to nothing yeah and I, I had a really rough year where basically my whole kind of world fell out from under me like music really? videos have kind of gone by the wayside commercials all of a sudden just stopped mm. people stopped spending money and the kind of you know low budget feature world that i had been living in was was falling by the wayside as well just by virtue of the way Hollywood was going and you know tv was starting to to take over and so it was fortuitous that heartland came along because i'm not entirely sure like i was in this period of like i'm not sure what i'm gonna do now right and i was con- contemplating moving to vancouver and all sorts of things and then heartland came knocking and i they sent me out to shoot they said well, just can you go shoot some establishers for us and it was kind of a, a bit of a test and i went out and shot some beauty shots for them and things and you know, and then and that led out. to me getting offered the show, and and uh, you know I can't thank them enough because, I mean I've 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 watched this show and I always thought you know I'd love to shoot Alberta for Alberta because mm, yeah. I've been shooting <laughs> yeah. I've been shooting Alberta for Montana and shooting Alberta to be Wyoming sure to, you know all these other places and it's like I actually get to shoot my home province as my home province and you know a chance to show it off you know and to be I mean Heartland wasn't a big budget show, but the production value, you know, I was talking to the producers and I said, the reality of this show is that we shoot on the same sets that they shot The Assassination of Jesse James, Legends of the Fall, Yeah, you know, we go to the same locations in the mountains and and in the foothills that they shot at, so we basically, they have these feature film production values just sitting there waiting to be shot, you know, and I said we need to seize that opportunity, and you know there's a real chance to give the show a sense of scale and a sense of, of uh, you know, feature filmmaking that is sort of built in. and And they really responded to that, and the you know the whole crew got behind it, and a lot of the crew had worked on those other films. So, you know, it, we tried to make it a sort of epic and grand as we could.
0: It's it's interesting that um, that's how you kind of came to your first major uh, TV opportunity I, I a few weeks back was speaking with Adrian Correa who shot the second season of glow and it just reminds me that you know a couple years he was mentioning that a couple of years prior he was wondering if things were really gonna work out and if he needed to maybe start teaching instead and it's and it's it's nice to hear this from people who you know on paper it looks like it was always steady going and to hear that it that it's not I just think it's really nice to reinforce with people because it's such a, it's such a difficult career and it's not possible for it to always be um, from one positive moment to the next. Um, So, you know, it's just nice that for for you to share that because I I think it's important to, that it gets discussed because there's not a lot of arenas for it to be discussed.
1: No, it's true. And it, you know, I mean, i never wanted a career that was a stratospheric rise. You know, I never, because I think, you know, you can sort of have a stratospheric rise you can be like the next big thing for like two or three years and then it could disappear you know um especially in the commercial world i saw that where you know somebody would have they'd shoot a spot and it was like oh we love that spot we want that look we'll hire that guy and you shoot that look for two years and then nobody wants that look anymore and you don't get hired anymore which is really unfair because everyone obviously has more diverse skill set than that but you know the like i said before i think it's important to, to always remember that this is a job you just get good at you just get better at you never really master it. And that applies sort of career wise too, where you know there's going to be fits and starts. There's going to be bumps. But looking back, the hardest times were the ones where I grew the most. Mm. You know, when you get that when you get that like sort of mortal fear in your gut about, oh my God, like do I have it? Do you know, is this going to work? Do I have the ability to do this job at the level I want to do it at? Am I going to get those opportunities? And that's when you sort of, you know, there's the choice to either, you know, you either double over or you double down. And I've always chosen to double down because, A, I don't really want to do anything else and I'm not really good at anything else. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like I ever had a plan <laughs> B, you know?
2: No, and, totally.
1: And I think it's important to, to just keep that in mind because, it's not, it's not the easiest job in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one of the most fulfilling jobs I imagine you could ever have. Yeah. And, and you know, the reality is that we have to, to call on personal experiences as filmmakers. And if you've been through some rough times and if you've had some struggles, that's when you really look inside yourself and say, what am I made of? Mm. And that's, that's when you actually grow, you know, when it comes easy and it's like, Oh, I'm, you know, you start to believe your own press, Mm. that's really dangerous you know like when you start to think oh man i'm the shit yeah sorry we allowed to. Start oh, yeah yeah thing?
0: you can say whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: you know, when you start to think that it's really dangerous you know because the reality you know the reality is we have to grow and keep growing and it's true if you start to ever think that you know you made it then where is there to go from there you know you've hit the summit it's just a long walk down after that mm. and you know the the reality is that it's 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 a lot of hard work, and and I think you know to get through those tough times, if anyone would be looking for advice, I would say focus on the work. Like yeah. honestly, that's the greatest remedy to those hard times is to focus on the work. Yeah, and to put to put all of that stress and anxiety into the work, and put all that nervous energy into doing the best job you can. I mean, it's always served me well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whenever it's, it's rough just to say, like, you know, what do I really want to do? It really focuses you and really can put the attention on what what really matters and what you really want to do. Yeah, You know, yeah. like I said before, a little, a little fear goes a long way.
0: Yeah, putting that energy to use. I mean, because if you're going to feel that way, it might, might as well be useful to you. Um, yeah, exactly. But before getting to Fargo and Legion, because I'm excited to talk about those things, I mean, Heartland, you ended up doing over 100 episodes, which just seems <laughs> yeah. like that's an incredible amount of just time spent um, and I could see that being so beneficial for just really flexing a muscle and, and building that. And I was curious about, you know over that period of time, if how your approach changed to it over a hundred episodes, um, what do you think you were able, like you improved upon or built on, and what would be certain things that you would have loved to have told yourself at the first episode after the hundredth that might have like made things better, easier, cooler, whatever?
1: Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I mean, doing 100 up more than 100, I never anticipated staying on the show that long. I, You know, I thought maybe I would do it for a season or two. But the reality is, I mean, I've always operated on gut instinct, and it always just felt right, you know?
0: Hmm.
1: It always felt like, I felt like as long as I could continue to bring something to the show, that I should keep doing it. Right. And ultimately, when I felt like there was no more I could bring to it, that's when it was time to move on. Um, And, you know, I'm really proud of the work everyone did on that show. I mean, it was it was the little show that could and still is. You know, I mean, it's going it just finished its 13th season. Oh, my gosh.
0: I wasn't aware. And part of the,
1: (laughs) I know, it's crazy. And part of the challenge of the show is that it's kind of like comfort food for the audience you know sure. it's,
0: it's like a Grey's Anatomy or something but in the, mid, in yeah. the uh, Midwest you can't really
1: change that recipe that much you know you yeah. can't like every year <laughs> every year when I go into to do the color grading on the first episode of the new season I would go in and I'd try out all these different looks and talk to the colorist like maybe we do this and it just never felt right you know mm-hmm. it was always like we just that's not the show yeah, you know and I, I could easily take that as being like oh we're just doing the same old thing over and over again but the reality is, you know, if you're, it, the, it's in a lot of ways, Heartland is, is very pure, simple, classic storytelling. Yeah. You know, it's we would just always take the cues from story. And to me, as long as you're telling the story with the camera, it's always interesting. You know, it's it, we're not doing crazy, you know, techno crane shots, or we're not doing, you know, insane cable cam work, or you know, it's just not that kind of thing but it was always invigorating because we were telling the story with the camera in a very deliberate, intentional way. And, a, you know, very classical filmmaking, which was kind of, it was very refreshing to directors that came in because a lot of TV is run and gun and doesn't have much discipline to it. And we, you know, a credit to the whole crew where they, they really wanted to retain this sense of, of feature filmmaking, you know, mm-hmm. even the way we lens the show, you know, we used, we did our close-ups on shorter lenses. We rarely did like big long lens hose downs where it was just like, throw three cameras at it and catch as catch can. That's just not how we did the show. So, you know, directors would come in and they would be like, well, can't I just like do this as like a two camera, just run and gun? And I'm like, no, it's not the show. You Mm. know, like this is, and, you know, keeping that discipline to it was invigorating because it, it gave the show a distinct visual feel, which, You know, which holds true to this day. I mean, you can't, like I said, it's, it's, there was an immersive quality to the way we shot it that, you know, was really important and it needed to feel like it was a, a postcard and it was, there had to be an aspirational quality to the audience. There had to be a lot of things that, that kept it interesting. And you know what, the reality is it really resonated. I mean, that show was broadcast in, I don't know, like every country in the world and yeah. You know, I've seen like Italian versions of it where, you know, the characters sound like mobsters or something like it's just really funny, you know, and the and you see like international versions and you see the responses from people from all over the world. And, you know, it's it's easy to underestimate that show and it's easy to underestimate what we were doing on it.
0: The world needed a uh, Canadian Western operatic drama. You know, who knew? Yeah. But that's what the
1: world well, And is. also, you know, the crazier the world got, the the more Heartland resonated with people.
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, because yeah.
1: it's everyone would love to live in a world where the solutions are, you know, are fairly simple and can be tied up in the course of a one hour episode. You know, yeah, like it's because, you know, TV, it's the rise of the anti-hero in television and shows like Breaking Bad. Some people just want a show where, you know, everybody's a hero. There's no antiheroes.
0: Mm Well, I was going to ask, you know, in terms of like a segue into Fargo and and Legion that, you know, did those feel when Fargo came, even maybe going into it mentally, knowing that, you know, the type of um, content that that was and the history that, that 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 story had, you know, did that feel like you were taking a big level up in your career on one hand, but then also just in terms of like the work and what was to be expected of you as a cinematographer on the other and maybe it wasn't that as as big of a leap hearing you describe like what cinematic techniques you brought to Heartland or what what was that like to go to, to walk into Fargo?
1: Well, I think I think your question basically nails it. I mean it was it was a I sort of jumped two or three steps in the the sort of progression by going from Heartland to Fargo because it you know to go from a smaller Canadian show that you know had so obviously we had to answer to certain people but when you go to a show like Fargo it's bearing a lot more scrutiny sure and you know you're working for an American network you're working for you know a very demanding showrunner in Noah Hawley who is just a genius and you know I learned so much from him and you know it was intimidating and I was intimidated I'm not gonna lie I mean I you know I was Put into a world again it was like i was thrown into the deep end of the pool but i felt like i knew always knew how to swim because mm. the reality is i'd sort of been preparing my whole career to shoot fargo because i'd you? always been a fan of the cohen brothers mm. i'd always been a huge fan of roger Deacons. Mm-hmm. and not that there is you know a direct comparison in the linear sense but the work we were doing and the way we were shooting heartland is not that far removed from the way fargo was shot you know there's a there's a sense of discipline to Fargo. There's a sense of precision, you know, it's not about shot count. It's about making your shots count mm-hmm. and, you know, a different way of filmmaking. You just, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, every time I, when I first started on Fargo, I would, you know, when we are planning and preparing and scouting, anytime I brought up sort of a TV shorthand trick, I was busted on it. Whereas it's like, no, no, we don't do that. You know, and it was, it was a real eye opener because it made me realize that you know I, I'd learned some bad habits on Heartland. I'm not going to lie because you know when you
0: I'm curious if there's an example of what that might be. an eleven
1: hour day. You know you've got to there's got to be some shortcuts. Um, but Vargo, there was no room for that. You know you had to. You had to tell the story in the best possible way, and obviously you had to respect schedule and budget and everything. But yeah, yeah. you know, they weren't interested in any shortcutted version of it.
0: What well, what were those examples of just bad habits that you needed to let go of?
1: Well, it's just I mean the the one thing it you know I there was a point when I was preparing my second block I'd shot a block of two episodes of Fargo and I was preparing this my second block and Noah Hawley the showrunner came in to my office and sat down and you know without notes or anything pr- proceeded to give me a very detailed breakdown of what didn't work about what, how I'd shot the first two episodes
2: oh, and wow. it wasn't,
1: it wasn't at all malicious. It wasn't at all critical. It was just like, okay, here's how we can improve.
2: Hmm.
1: And I had wish if he, he just came in, I mean, there wasn't a uh, scheduled meeting, but I, I wish I had the time to start record on my phone because it was a masterclass in storytelling. Wow. This, you know, this breakdown of how, how, you know, how important point of view is in a scene, how important it is to include only include information that's critical to the story, you know, to not have, you know, to not shoot anything that, that isn't driving the narrative forward. Yeah. You know, there was some. there was, I remember one specific instance where we were with a character in one scene and then we cut to another scene and the character walks into that scene, but the character wasn't in the first shot of that scene, the way we shot it where I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm describing this well, but like we went out on a close-up of one character and then it's supposed, we're supposed to carry that character into the next scene. But the way we'd compose it was we'd started on some other characters and then he walks in the background and he's like, well, I don't, I don't want to do that because I want to be with that character. Mm-hmm. And now you're bringing in other people and it's not their scene. It's his scene. So it has to be his entrance.
2: Mm.
1: And it's something, you know, it was something where, I mean, it seems obvious now, but at the time, it was a revelation to me about whose scene it is, right? And point of view—the importance of where you put the camera and point of view—on that shows everything, you yeah. know. Because you really need to be with those characters, and there needs to be, you know, the audience needs to be taken through the story in, in a way that is always pushing the narrative forward and is always emotionally true. And, you know, there's certain, you know, you can get away with with that on some other shows, but there's just nowhere to hide on a show like Fargo because the writing is so tight and the scripts are so precise and detailed that, you know, you, if you miss something, you notice. Whereas on some yeah. some scripts, they're not that tight, so if you miss something, you don't notice. You well, know?
0: that's what's so great about that type of, I think why those stories tend to resonate the most and why everyone, like, what kind of pushes that type of storytelling into the prestige television category is the level of intention and exactitude of every single thing was done for for a reason it isn't just either willy-nilly or because well it looked pretty so we did it like there everything had to be layered five five ways deep um as a prerequisite to even being considered um Mm -hmm. and that you know i think as a practitioner of the craft like when you get to watch that in things you're just like I don't know, I just find myself, I appreciate those so much because I'm like, I I just know how hard that is to so many, di- and from so many different departments and, you know, to be a part mm-hmm. of those types of um, projects, I can only imagine how much everyone is, has to be so dialed in for that yeah. t- to work and uh, have that no, result. And,
1: and you see people, you know, they they bring a different game to it. You know, I've I worked on Fargo with people that i would worked my whole career with and I saw them bring a different level of their game to that show because the reality is, on a show like Fargo, everyone's working to rise to the level of the material. Yeah. You know, because the scripts are so incredible. I remember reading those first two scripts and just going, oh my God, like this is the best thing I've ever read. Like it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's so vivid and it's so clear the way it's written that, you know, part of it is just stay out of the way of it, you know, like just not, don't get in the way of this story because. It's there, and if you're if you're respectful of it, it'll turn out well. But it's when you if you if you try to inflict yourself on this, it's only going to hurt it, you know. And that's that's why I, when I was saying that I feel like I prepared my whole life for Fargo. It's because I've always viewed the camera as more of a sniper rifle than a machine gun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very precise tool, it. and it's it's not something. You know, I, mean, I always I always joke to the camera operators. You know, you got to be careful where you point that thing, <laughs> because you know, because it's a very precise tool, and you you just don't you point you don't point it at just anything. You right. point it at the story. Yeah. And and Fargo was you know the the culmination of that thinking. Totally. Where you know the the story was so clear and precise, precisely crafted that. All we had to do was point the camera at the story, and we were getting off to a good start. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Um, and very that feels very um, Deakins-esque, and no surprise that Fargo is where that got instilled. Um, mm-hmm. and I and I read in an interview that you gave about how you were initially brought on, not you know like doing some second unit stuff, and that it and that it worked up to um, to you know DPing proper episodes and. I'm always curious, you know. I think sometimes people might not want to take on that type of role if they just, you know, view themselves. Well, I'm I'm a DP and I don't want to be doing that kind of thing. But obviously, that worked out great for you. And how, why do you think? How do you think your approach, um, just in general, even when you were doing the like second unit, um, why did that build for you into being the the main unit DP eventually? Like, what what were you, do you think you were bringing to it that was working out and is that just a mentality thing um or how you are handling crew like what 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 brings about that further success and elevation within a project
1: again it was a it was a a very good fit for me because because of my love of the cohen brothers and you know i knew the world and i understand the world right away you know i i didn't necessarily need to get fargo 101 because you know i knew that world and i i love that world And so that, you know, that gave me a head start. And, you know, part of it was like I said earlier about putting your ego aside Mm -hmm. and and looking at an opportunity and saying, like, you know, shooting second unit or inserts on a series like Fargo is not beneath me by any stretch.
2: No. You know, it's an opportunity
1: to work with incredible filmmakers. Yeah. And and the reality of the way the second unit work went is that, you know, it started out with more traditional you know, establishing shots, drive-bys, inserts, those sorts of things. And it just gradually evolved and grew into doing more substantial work. And I was working with John Cameron, who's amazing. He's one of the executive producers on the show and we really got along well. And it just was a very natural evolution into, you know, I think the reality is that Noah felt that I understood, that I knew the show, you know, that I understood that world. And I think John Cameron, who had worked with the Coen brothers, you know, saw that I, I knew what they were trying to do and I understood the world and I was a, it was a fairly seamless fit, you know, and I don't, I bring, you know, I, I take my work very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. Mm. And, you know, leaving that ego aside and, you know, working with a talented DP like Dana Gonzalez and just saying, okay, okay, what, how, what's he doing? Mm -hmm. You know, not saying, oh, I'm going to do my version of, of what Dane is doing. It's like, I want to know the world he's created and I want to be, you know, I want to fit into that world and, and make sure that what I'm doing is in support of what he's doing and not, again, not inflicting myself on it, not saying like, yeah, you know, think, I think I know better, you know?
0: Yeah. It's team players. Because
1: stuff. yeah, no. And then and that applies to, you know, when I'm alternating on a series with any DP, yeah. you know, it has to be a piece of a whole, you know, mm-hmm. it can't be, you know that sort of chameleon aspect I really enjoy you know because it does make me look at my work differently and it it keeps me from just doing my thing over and over again because I don't really have a thing and I was talking to my agent about that and he's he's like what's your thing and I'm like I don't have a thing (laughs) my (laughs) thing is whatever's best for the story you know and and on a show like Umbrella Academy it serves me well because this show requires you to to plumb the depths of all sorts of different shooting styles
2: mm.
1: and all sorts of different disciplines. And it's if you get too set in your ways and you get too attached to this notion of this is my thing, that can be a little dangerous too. I mean, obviously, I have aesthetic preferences and I have things that, sure you know, if you, if you look at what I've done, there's obvious through lines. But, you know, it's not like I'm the, you know, the big half-lit soft-light guy, you know, yeah. wide open... You know, I just, I just don't have a thing. Like some guys have, you know, where it's like everything's a 12-by, you know, soft source and it's wide open. And it's like, oh, sort of every scene is sort of a variation on that. And I love ta- I love embracing whatever the scene needs to be and, you know, using whatever tools are appropriate, whether that's sometimes available late or whether you empty the truck on something. You know, it's it has to be an instinctive response to what's presented to you and not a preconceived notion of what you think the scene should be. I mean, obviously you prep and you bring notion, you know, you have to bring some sense of a preconceived notion to it, but I think being open to what's in front of you. Yeah. You know, that's, that what separates you from being a technician to a storyteller.
0: Sure. It's kind of interesting hearing you talk about this. Cause I'm thinking about from Heartland or Fargo or X-Files and Twilight Zone that you're coming into things that already have, um, history to it and that mm-hmm. it, I guess in that way it's actually not a surprise that you're a good fit for those type for those shows um because that that leans into like your thing of not having one and listening to whatever it might be it, I found it interesting that you know from Fargo and X-Files and Twilight Zone in particular with those three that you know you're you're coming into worlds that have already been described and formed but obviously coming into it in a way that Still allows you to um, bring yourself to it, and in ways that every all the creators are happy with. Uh, that's mm-hmm. just that's just very fascinating because I would imagine that in a lot of ways that's a hard needle to thread.
1: It really is, and I'm not sure how that happened. I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure how I got to check off my cinematic bucket list of you know recreating. It's pretty cool. Like X Files, I watched that show when I was just starting out, and it was a huge influence on me. And to be standing on set beside David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson was just like yeah complete out-of-body experience from like how did i get here yeah, yeah you know um but it's you know it, it's part part of the the challenge of of that is you know how do you it's a, that fine line between respecting the source material and not mimicking you know mm-hmm. like you want to make it an homage but you don't want to make it you know it's not a it, it doesn't want to be and doesn't need to be a strict recreation of anything. I mean, everything has to be placed contextually. You know, if I, if we were to shoot X-Files strictly in the way it was done back in the day, it wouldn't feel right. You know, to yeah. today's audience, it would feel, it would feel dated and maybe a bit, you know, a bit uh, too much of an homage, you know, where it's like, oh, this is like, they're trying to be a shoot like we did in the nineties, which you know it's just i don't think that would resonate with a right. modern audience right and twilight zone the same way i mean we could shoot one of the things we talked about on twilight zone was that the original series when people watch it now it has the benefit of nostalgia
2: mm-hmm. you know where
1: the audience watches it and they they have different expectations on it because they know it's an old show you know it's like oh this was done at a different time even if it's subconscious even if they don't know anything about filmmaking it's like when they watch an old movie. It's like, oh, the acting's a bit big. The lighting is very, you know, hard. And the way it's shot is very, you know, much in a tableau style. But there's an acceptance of it because that is, there's a nostalgia to it. And, yeah. you know, the original Twilight Zone benefited from that. But that wasn't something we can necessarily bring to the to the modern version of it. Because if you shot it that way, I, I don't think modern audience would have the patience for it. Because they wouldn't. They wouldn't give it that chance. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't give it a slide on based on nostalgia because it's like, well, this is not, you know, why are they shooting it like it was the 60s and it's not the 60s anymore, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and then it's nice because you have all these things, but then something like Legion, you know, visually very rich, and i and reading an interview and you're talking about, in one way it was almost, that, that could be difficult because if you have the whole, if the whole world's your oyster because of how, kind of like visually stimulating the material wants to be that you, in a sense, I would imagine you would need to create your own rules or limitations or things to kind of define what it can be. Cause in this instance, it's not pulling the way that these other shows are. So like, that's just, um, it's, it's nice that you have also had the opportunity to do something like that too, cause it's not all just, you know, Mm -hmm. um, re transforming something of old.
1: Yeah, no, it's I mean Legion was an incredible experience, you know, especially we shot Legion between uh, seasons two and three of Fargo. So to go from you know, the Oh the that's very cool precise, just in terms of your own mindset. Story sorry, go ahead. I was just I saying,
0: understand. oh that's that's really interesting, just in terms of your own mindset, in terms of your actual lived experience that, you know, in a in a year or so you're going from something like Fargo and then you're doing something like Legion in between another Fargo season. It's that's fascinating. Yeah.
1: It really required a huge shift in mindset. And you know, if you look at season three of Fargo, you can see little Legion influences in it, you know, where there's there's little things in episode three of or season three of Fargo where you're you're just like, well, it's just a little bit you know, it's very subtle, mm-hmm, but you know, mm-hmm. to the keen eye you can see it. But, you know, the Legion was Legion, you know, made made me form muscles I didn't know I had, mm. you know, because I'd done, you know, my
0: that makes sense. The work I had
1: done on the features and and on Heartland and and season two of Fargo was very, um, you know, very that sort of classical, uh, very disciplined, somewhat restrained style. And then to go to Legion, which had to be an experience. You know, Legion was so much more than just a you know a story being told. It had to be immersive. It had to be somewhat subjective, and it you know really had to put the audience in that world in a way that that was unlike anything i'd done so you know i learned so much on that show and you know it was so stressful like doing legion it was just because you you always wanted to make sure that you were telling the story properly and you wanted to be using the right tool to tell that story and you know like you said on the surface you'd be like oh you know you could open the whole toy box but then you realize that you open the toy box and you're faced with all these toys. And it's like, well, only one of these is the right thing. Now, yeah. what, which one is it? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, it's hard. And and that was this, you know, that we had unbelievable meetings on that show about. You know, I'd never, I'd never worked on a show that it had altered my perception of the world around me the way Legion did. Hmm. You know, I would. You'd have these these meetings where you would talk about the sort of the human experience in the most abstract ways and the most nonlinear ways. And it was very, it was an incredible, incredibly creative experience, but also incredible on a cerebral level because the scripts are so, so cerebral and so deep and, you know, really mine the depths of the human experience in a way that is so different than than a lot of shows I've done. So, you know, I've just, I remember just being really stressed out a lot, yeah. <laughs> but I also remember having a really great time uh and just really you know just having my my boundaries expanded the way it did and you know and that has since gone on to you know if i hadn't done legion it would be much more difficult to do umbrella academy yeah you know like it would be a much bigger leap for me to go you know and twilight zone as well you know like there's a lot of there's some interesting through lines in my career that are not conscious choices Mm. and you know like there's a bit of, you know, X-Files begets Legion begets Umbrella Academy, you know, and there's a bit of, you know, Twilight Zone, Legion begets Twilight Zone and vice versa. You know, it's just really interesting. And again, it's nothing that that has been conscious. I think it's just been, you know, like I said earlier, focusing on the work and having the work kind of lead in different directions and and resonate with people in ways where they're like, okay, I think that guy can do this. Yeah, you know, like Steve Blackman seeing my work on on Fargo and Legion, to bring me onto Umbrella, which is, in a lot of ways, an amalgamation of those two shooting styles, because there's a very beautiful classical, formal structure to Umbrella, and with these insane flourishes of complete insanity and you know this bonkers stuff going on, that, you know, again, those two experiences kind of merge into one on a show like Umbrella, and you find yourself calling on all of those muscles that you, that you built up doing those shows.
0: Yeah. Well, to, to wrap up, um, knowing that you've ticked off so many bucket list things with the shows you've been able to do moving forward, um, after umbrella Academy and even, you know, further into the career in terms of years, like what, what do you hope for to do that? Maybe you haven't done yet or what, how are you trying to, what are you thinking about in terms of that?
1: Huh? My agent always asks me that question. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a hard one. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I would be terrible sort of, at
0: answering it myself.
1: My sort of coy answer to it, which is not entirely untrue, is always you know I just want to keep doing great work with great people. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what what it boils down to. Because there's sure. an essence, the essence of what I, I love about the work is the connectivity with people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I was just talking to someone about this last night that you know the real, the real opportunity we have as cinematographers is the ability to connect with people, you know, being the crew, the producers, the directors, and the cast, you connect with those people in a very real, very intense way Mm -hmm. that, that is far beyond what a lot of the connections are in daily life. You know, like you just have really intense collaboration and a really intense relationship with the people. And then through that intensity and through that, that connection and collaboration becomes a product that further connects with people. Yeah. You know, where all of these connections lead to a product that then hopefully goes out and connects with an audience. So to me, that's, you know, because there's been points in my career when I've, when I've said like, why why am I doing this? Like, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: the hours are long, you're away from home. You start asking yourself these existential questions about like, what am I doing?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, which is just, a human reaction it's not that you know i'm unhappy with the work or anything far from it but you start to have these sorts of you know in the middle of the night when you're sleep deprived you start asking yourself what am i doing and it, it occurred to me uh sometime within the last two years that that it's those connections that's really what it's about like that's what keeps you going mm. and and then when you create something that resonates with an audience and you realize like people are connecting with this and And by people connecting with it, there's further connections where people are talking about it, where it's like two people who maybe didn't talk before are now talking about Umbrella Umbrella Academy or they're talking about Twilight Zone. And so the opportunity to bring people together is just remarkable. And it's, it's a real honor and it's a real, I feel a sense of responsibility to it, you know, where we need to, not only be responsible to the crew and honor those relationships and those connections, but you need to honor the audience and those connections and try to do the best work you possibly can so that you can make those true connections and hopefully, without sounding too pie in the sky about it, you want to sort of help bring people together. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, sounds, it sounds kind of maudlin when you talk about it, but that's I, kind of what it's all about.
0: Yeah, and I mean, honestly, when you get people who are so into... I mean, I know people who are just like super into some of the shows that you've made, and the way that they uh, get riled up talking about it and enjoy that. I mean, it's it might be pie in the sky, but it's true too. So
1: no, it is. You know, I I hope so. I mean, I hope that I hope that what we're doing, you know, has has a legacy and has you know has something. If it helps somebody get through the day, you mm-hmm. know, great. Mhm. Totally.
0: Well. I think that's a great place to end it on. So thanks so much for your time and for talking about everything. Uh, really enjoyed, really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and I love the uh, I love the idea of art versus commerce because it's the endless struggle, and it's uh, <laughs> but it's a fight worth fighting for sure.
0: There you go, man. Perfect way to end. Thanks.
1: All right. Thanks.